You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What's up? It's your man Doc Coyle, and this is the X-Man Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, even though it's a podcast and you don't really tune in, but hard to get rid of that old radio jargon. Hasn't been that long since my last show, but it feels like a long time because I was just in Iceland and London on, as they say over there, holiday. I was on holiday. It was a lot of fun. It was very exhausting. Traveling is very exhausting. I'm sure if you follow me on social media, you've seen some of the pictures and adventures. You know, one thing I want to dispel really quick is uh, something that's really annoys me is happy ass couples posting pictures of them doing stuff around the uh, around the earth. You know, and that's kind of what it looked like. You know, I mean, that's what it looked like. I'm not going to lie. It looked like me and my girlfriend are having the time of our life. We're like, it's so great. And it was, guys, it was great. But. I think it's important to say this. Remember when people post on social media, it's like a greatest hits album. Okay. And it's kind of annoying because what it does, it, it, it creates like uh, life envy, you know? So you, you see pictures of other people doing stuff. That's really cool. And then you think that that's the life that there's, you know, the, you know, this is like a reality show. They edit out all the, the stuff they don't want you to see. But uh, <laughs> no, it was actually, it was, it was a really great time. And uh, Iceland's amazing. I, I highly suggest you go there. It's very cold and it has very erratic weather. It's very windy. So prepare, but the, it is worth it. I, I, I guarantee you, and especially the Blue Lagoon. If you saw any pictures from me there, that was the bomb. Um, and the thing is when, you're, when you tour a lot, you don't get to actually go and see things. You tend to just play the show. So props to my girl jazz for for setting it all up because me i'll just stay home i won't i won't go anywhere unless it's the movies or maybe a bar or like a show so it's good to get 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 my my ass out of the house but it was a lot of fun but you know for some reason when you go to europe every day feels like two days it's just i feel like i've been gone forever but i'm glad to be back in the los angeles area it was like 80 degrees today in january so i'm not complaining um Lots of stuff has has happened since I've I've been away. Some some bad news. Um, my man uh, Pauli No Neck Antignani, which I didn't even know his last name even before this, 
uh, former drummer of the band Sworn Enemy passed away uh, last week. And that's some really, really sad news. He was a great guy, always filled with positive energy, always a smile on his face, um, and just a great guy to have around. And and I don't know a lot of the details about what exactly happened, but I just want to send um, my condolences and well wishes to uh, my homies in, in Sworn Enemy, his family, his friends, the entire uh, New York, New Jersey hardcore scene that that really embraced him. I just want to send a lot of love. It's um, anytime, you know, anyone dies before their time, it's it's just really terrible. And, and this community is very close and we're all affected when something like this happens. So much love to, to, to everyone. And, and Paulie, you will definitely be missed, man. Definitely be thinking about you. Uh, we also had another loss in the greater hard rock community, and that was uh, Dolores O'Riordan from the band The Cranberries died very young. Um, she was only 47, I believe, uh, this past weekend. And this occurrence is actually closely related to, to myself. As I'm sure some of you have seen the news, my band Bad Wolves had recorded a cover of the Cranberry song Zombie. And one of the people from our record label had worked with her previously and had set it up for her to actually do a vocal on our cover of the song. And she actually passed away the day she was supposed to record this. And the thing is, us guys in the band, we had heard that this was going to be happening, but we weren't sure that we weren't getting a lot of the details. So for for us, a lot of this was news to us. The fact that she was actually getting ready to work on this and, you know, it's just completely tragic and, and feeling kind of connected to it in this in this really odd, odd way. Um it's very difficult to process. I'm, go I'm going to be really honest. I mean, like many of you, my in my aging or thirties, we grew up with with the cranberries, and in a sense, when you have stuff like that, it's 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 almost it's part of your kind of pop culture and your life, and and you have something that's so distant. But now, it for for our band, it's actually very close, and um, you know. Yeah, I, I I I'm I don't have anything that eloquent to say about it, but it's just you know you know it's it's heartbreaking and and same thing you know just send her family and and that band um, all the compassion and, and condolences because that's just man you just you don't know how much time you have left and and it's just extremely extremely sad and and. You know, yes, it would have been nice to have her on on our, on our song or on our version of of the song, but it's just it's just terrible, terrible news. And you know, we're pl still planning on releasing the cover anyway. And I guess now it can kind of exist as a a tribute uh, to Dolores and her her wonderful work over all these years. And um, and you know, and I was just glad. You know, I heard that that she heard it and then she liked it, and that's. Obviously, um, you just can't believe that to begin with. So, hopefully, it can serve as a as a as a, a nice tribute. And because of this, we decided to actually push up the release of the song. So, 
that will hopefully be released in the next couple weeks. So I just wanted to say something about that. Um, anyway, let's uh, kind of move on to some other things I would like to talk about this show's sponsor. Please support rockabilia.com. They are the number one stop shop for all your needs in hard rock, metal, and even other types of band merchandise, as well as pop culture, entertainment, movies. They pretty much have everything. They have half a million items and all their stuff is legit. It is not bootleg. It is officially licensed merchandise. So please go over to rockabilia.com and with your first purchase, you can get 15% off with the X-Men discount code. And the code is P-C-E-X-M-A-N. That's P-C-X-Men. And for the first time in a long time, we have a band to sponsor today's episode. And the sponsor of today's episode is a band, an L.A. band, friends of mine, called Void Vader. And the song we're about to play is called No Return, and it's from their album entitled Dehumanized, which was released through Auric Wild's Worm Group. So check out this track called No Return. Break out! 
So that was No Return by the band Void Vader from their album Dehumanized. And that album was also produced, engineered, and mixed and mastered by Ulrich Wilde. If you don't know him, he's done stuff by, he's produced stuff by Static X and Bleeding Through and Deftones. So he's pretty badass. And you can find Dehumanized on all digital platforms as well as physical CD. If you want to grab that or contact the band, please head over to their website, which is www.voidvader.com. And the way you spell that is V-O-I-D and Vader is V-A-T-O-R. And they just dropped the brand new video for that track today on YouTube. So check that out. And they have a couple of show announcements as well in Southern California. They will be playing the Schechter Guitar Showcase at the 2018 NAM convention in Anaheim, California. And that is on January 26th. And they will also be playing a show at the Viper Room in Hollywood, California on January 28th. So I hope you guys enjoyed that track. And... I've seen them live a few times and they shred. They really bring the house down. So check out Void Vader and thank you to them for sponsoring the show. And if you would like to sponsor the show, please reach out to me on social media or send me an email to thexmanpodcast at gmail.com. And now I'm going to get into my conversation with my old friend, Rob Flynn, um, this is a pretty big deal for me. Rob's probably the biggest, most well-known guest I've had on the X-Men show so far. So it's it's eagerly anticipated on on my end and, I, and hopefully for the listeners of the show as well. It's uh it's hard to say. I mean, the, the I the way I approached this was I know a lot of people were asking Rob probably a lot of the same types of questions and I decided to just do an X-Men show. So I really wanted to get into some of the past and how they came to be and what it was like in those early years. Because as a fan, that's just a lot of stuff I want to know. And, you know, Rob is someone I consider a mentor, someone I've, I've gone to in the past for advice about things and not just in music and also just just life. And he's someone that that really embraced my old band and me as a individual for a long time. So, you know, I was definitely, definitely very, very excited to get him on, on the show. And, and the way this, this came about was we, we had talked about him doing the show and, and I didn't think it was going to happen. And kind of last minute he hit me up. So I didn't really get to do a whole lot of preparation, but listening back to it, I think it came out really, really well. So I'm not going to blabber too much. Let's just get to the talk. Actually, hold on one, one more thing. You see at the beginning, we kind of, there's some talk mention of, of weed. We kind of do a, some weed talk before the actual interview starts. So just to give you a, a little disclaimer. So that's that what that reference is, but I didn't think it was really relevant. So I cut that shit out. So anyway, check this talk out with the legendary Rob Flynn of Machine Head. Well, Rob, welcome to the X Man. Hey, this is not a weed themed show. I know, right? For the kids, that was out a good there. start, though. I you. know because I'm not. That was that fucking hell of an opening monologue. No, but, there. but some dudes are like really all about the weed, you know. And, and you know, no, I got I got other things to talk about. All right, cool. because on this show, we're all about where you came from 
and where you're at <laughs> and how you got there, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure, I, I can imagine you, you've been doing a few podcasts and it's like, so Rob, racism, man. Let's talk, right? <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. it's like racism. They're like, you're the dude who stands up. I'm like, I don't want to be the dude who stands up. Like, I'm just trying to fucking live my life. I don't know. You are, you know, you put yourself out there. So you, you've earned all the, um, all, all the questioning, sure. right? Sure. Okay. That's fine though. Yeah. But, but what I'm saying is over here, we have, we have our own, own thing. And I remember talking to you on the phone and you're like, Hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm an X man. I'm like, I know, I know. So you were in a band called violence mm-hmm. back in the day. And before that I was in forbidden evil forbidden, but did forbidden, which is evil? forbidden, which is forbidden. Okay. So yeah. technically you were in forbidden. Yes. Kind I started of. forbidden. You started yeah, that. Shit. I did. I wrote like half that first record. Did you quit or did you get kicked out? It was, it was, a little bit of both. I was really out of hand on speed, like just out of my fucking mind. So many drugs crank. in this episode. I know. There's a lot of drugs already. We're starting off with drugs. So, so was speed. It's all right. Good. Let me, all right, so let me ask you this question. Did speed, the drug, help actually fuel thrash metal? Like did speed metal and the speed, oh, the drug go hand in hand? Absolutely. And if it wasn't for that, would everyone have been playing so fast? I, th- I think that. You know, I think that in the early 80s, there was a huge proliferation. You know, like cocaine had been around for a while. And then. But that's just just expensive, man. Broke ass motherfuckers. And then fucking Crank came along, and Crank was like $5 a bag cheaper, and it lasted, you know, Coke would last an hour. And speed would last for five hours. Was it is crank speed? Crank is speed. Yeah, okay. that was the that was the slang back then. All I think right. they call it meth now, but back then it was crank. I'm learning so much. And uh, and so you would get that, and it was like more bang for your buck, and it was five dollars cheaper for a little quarter bag, and it was like let's do speed, and everybody was like let's do speed, speed metal. It's called speed metal, so it must be doing speed. And I don't even know if everybody was doing speed, but we were like, you got. I guess you have to do speed. <laughs> so we just started doing bunch of speed and at first it was like pills and then it kind of and then it turned into crank and and then we heard that all the exodus dudes did speed and we were like see like that's the way you do it and then by the time by the time master of puppets came out and it was like chop your breakfast on it we were like fuck yeah i'm chopping my breakfast on a mirror like i fucking <laughs> live those words it's performance enhancing drugs you know who else was doing that shit the New York Mets with Daryl Strawberry, they were talking about how they would take speed and it would help them like see the ball better because their oh, like, yeah. eyes would get totally dilated. It totally helps you. Like you can just concentrate like crazy when you do it. At least I could. I was like, it was, I would do speed and I, most of the time I just play guitar for like six hours and just learn everything under the sun and, and, and got better. And I did, you know, like, I don't want to like sit here and be like a fucking, <laughs> like a big advertisement for speed, but it did have like a positive effect on my life in in some ways you know in other ways it had a very negative effect because i just went completely out of control with like booze and you know like the problem with speed is that you do speed and then you can drink you know you drink like a few beers and you're like oh i can fucking i can drink way more beers and so then it's like this kind of vicious cycle but yeah i could pretty much i could drink about 24 beers and record demos and as long as i was on speed i could literally play flawlessly and just be crushing it it was it was a bad it was a very bad bar to set in my early uh, 17 18 year old by life. the way i i love how did you get kicked out of forbidden turned into an infomercial for speed <laughs> drinking 24 <laughs> beers and learning all the riffs <laughs> That's right. um yeah i kind of like i so, kind of quit and they kind of kicked me out because i was just really just 
fucking completely out of hand. Dude. How old were you? I was like, and then I got into like, we're like stealing fucking, we're getting, you know, stealing beers out of liquor stores and getting chased down the street with a shotgun. And like, it was insane. Like how, eight, how I was old 18, I was 18. You're 18. Okay. Yeah. So it was just, it got really crazy and I don't think they wanted to deal with it. And I was kind of sick of hearing them like complain about my craziness. And so they fuck this shit. And then violence wanted me to join. I was like, I'm joining fucking violence. Fuck this shit. Okay. So, and now you were living in Oakland or Fremont, Fremont. Where's that? Fremont's about 40 miles South of Oakland. And so when I, I moved to Fremont when I started junior high. And so that was like probably the last move that we did. And Fremont was just a big, you know, up until then, I just kind of lived in like white trash areas. You know, I grew up three blocks away from the trailer park that my dad grew up in. And uh, Fremont was like just a just a generic, gigantic suburb. And, uh, you know, people cruised up and down the strip and, you know, you'd go hang out at the top. You'd hang out at the Carl's Jr. on Fremont Boulevard and watch all the cars go by. And that was like the extent of like a raging night in Fremont. There'd be fights. You'd just skateboard over there. And, you know, there was just not a lot to do. But in a way, there was this cool thing with cruising, you know, and like for a good two miles, like cars would just drive up and they'd listen to music and pick up on girls and dudes would get in fights. And it was just this weird, crazy suburban you know, life. But with lots of fighting, this is with lots of fight and lots of drinking and drugs and stuff like that. So. This ain't, this ain't Mayberry. Up yeah, in here. it wasn't Mayberry. So you're, you're playing in, in violence. <clears throat> now, is it just kind of happenstance that, there was all this kind of uh, intermingling between the many thrash bands or that all kind of came out of the same primordial kind of soup. Uh, like was everyone just happened to kind of live in the same areas and know each other or was we were, it? Yeah. We, I mean, we were all kind of practicing around the same areas. We, there was a, there was kind of a, a, a meeting ground with uh, in Fremont where practice spaces were cheap. You know, it was in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like this, where we all rehearsed was just like empty land and a couple of warehouses and so <clears throat> we'd all meet up there and then the guy Pat Sauger who owned our uh where we rehearsed he he was just super chill and he just let anybody and everybody come and just fucking rage all night all nighters just raging and drinking and because it was kind of in the middle of this just industrial nothingness cops almost never came because no one was complaining no one was even there most of the time at night and so in a lot of ways, it was this really cool, amazing time because you just had this freedom to just fucking play music. Like you, we would just play and play and play till like 12, one o'clock in the morning and just drink beer and, you know, <laughs> hang out with chicks and do tons of speed. And so it was a cool, it was a cool vibe. And uh, Violence, how many records did you with that band? How long were you, were you with them? I joined, uh, I joined in January 1987 and we did two albums which most people know eternal nightmare and uh pressing the masses i couldn't even find it on on spotify or maybe uh, i was I looking know. it up wrong i don't know i don't know but then uh, and then there was a third one that never really saw the light of day that was pretty bad it was like the band was kind of just you guys were apart. signed right yeah we had a, we came out with a record on mechanics mca and then we came out with another record on uh megaforce atlantic mm-hmm. so were you doing a lot of touring we did, yeah. We did quite a few, bit, quite a bit of touring. My first, uh, yeah, like our first tour was with Testament because the Violence guys grew up with the Testament guys, Chuck and them, and 
so yeah, we did, we did some, you know, the, that tour was probably the best tour, like hands down, yeah. like just all across the board because you know, they were hot and we thought we were just as hot, but we quickly learned that we weren't just <laughs> anywhere near as hot as Testament was at the time. And, uh, but it was, it, yeah, it was like van, you know, like just fucking in a van, no trailer, just all of us, in a, no trailer, no trailer. It was all seven of us. It was, so it was Joey who is my manager and machine head now. And Joey was also our manager for violence co-manager. So I call him Joey, but he's actually Joseph. He would be upset if I hear, if he heard me calling him Joey, but I call him Joey. And if you ever see him in person, he kind of looks like he could be like a really good mob enforcer, you yeah. know, like he's, he is a Joseph. Like yeah. it's just, he, he commands respect. Yeah, for sure. He, uh, but he was on the, he was in the van with us. And then Debbie Abono was in the van with us. And uh, Debbie Abona was very famous. Like she managed a lot of it. She managed Forbidden. She managed Violence. She managed Possessed. She uh, and she would go out there, and we'd be in this van, and no trailer. So it'd be all of our luggage, all of our gear, drums tied with a rope to the ceiling, to the roof of the van, and then all seven of us in the van, and we would just drive and. If you, we would rotate seats and it was the three, me, Phil and Dean drove a lot. And I was in the band with Phil who's in machine head now. And, uh, we would rotate seats. And if you got that back seat, it was like heaven because there was only two seats, right? Yeah. So you'd put a pillow in the middle of the thing and then you'd put one dude's head laying one way and then the other dude's head laying, and then you'd have your feet up on the window so that you could lay flat for three hours or four hours and it was pretty much heaven. You know, no fucking heater. We're in Texas. It was, oh my God, it was insanity. No, what about, what no about road, that MCA no tour support? Crew. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were spending all their money on ads but uh, we toured, you know, it was fucking, you know, I was my own roadie, changed my own strings. I'd get done playing. I'd stick my I'd stick my guitar right in my case, grab my guitar case in one hand, grab my cab in the other and walk out to the van and load it. And then, you know, go and try and find a girl to, you know, buy me a hamburger or give me a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> that, was about, that, was, that was life on the road back in 1988. So did, even though it's, it's, it's funny because you think about those last couple of years, the eighties where some of, if not the most important thrash metal records were coming out in many ways, it was like, and especially in kind of incongruence with the the Clash of the Titans tour, which was the peak of thrash metal. Right, totally. In a way, it also kind of signified the end of, sure. of what that era of thrash metal was. Could you see that coming around the bend? I definitely saw it coming around the bend. I mean, we were, I, can, I always considered, you know, Forbidden and Violence like third wave. You know, like Metallica Slayer was the first wave. Exodus, even though Exodus was there in the beginning, they didn't really get their shot Break. until like yeah. 85. So then it was like Exodus, Testament, Death Angel. And then it was Forbidden Violence. You, you know, we, the, you know, our first record dropped 88. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's Injustice for All. That's South of Heaven. I mean, that's pretty far into yeah. the, the genesis of, of thrash metal. So, uh, so it was definitely already changing then like grunge was already come around and Alice in Chains was already starting to come around and Soundgarden. And, and it was like, I could, I could see the writing on the wall. And then just our label at the time was trying to really like make us go like radio. And I was like, look, man, like our singer can't even fucking sing. <laughs> like, could, you, could you sing at this time? Did you know I you could, could sing? sing, but I wasn't like, I was never going to be the singer of violence, you know, yeah. like violence had a really formidable, like incredibly unique, 
singer that I loved and, and at the time most people hated, but because I was from a punk rock background, like I totally got it. Like mm-hmm. I understood where, you know, it was just all about attitude and fuck you and, you know, a very uh, original voice, but a voice that, you know, not a lot of people at the time liked at all. And uh, like people always said that they liked the riffs, but they didn't like the singer. And uh, that was, I felt that was how it was for me for a lot of thrash stuff at that time. Like even bands like Exodus and Overkill, mm-hmm. I feel like the biggest difference between those bands and A Testament or Metallica, Metallica is the, is the vocals just being a little more accessible, a little more easy to listen to. Yeah. Obviously, there's that melody aspect to it, but also just a tonal thing that you know just has that ability to cross over a little more. And especially sure. when I was younger. And you're kind of more attuned to things that are easier on your ears. Yeah. I suppose. I hear you. So you and saw that coming around. I, saw, the I definitely saw it. I mean, I was like, shit's changing. And, you know, for me, because I wasn't just a metalhead, like I always liked. I mean, I, my, my first show was a thrash metal show. My second show was a punk rock show, DRI, at the Mabuhay Gardens on the Violent Pacification EP tour when they only drew fucking gnarly ass SF skins who just fought for 50 minutes while they played and it was like the fucking most insane scary terrifying shit you ever saw (laughs) you know like giant linebacker sides dudes like breaking bottles fucking opening up their forehead and blood and just fucking wiping it down their face you were like what the fuck like it was insane and you know so I had that and then hip hop came along and you know like me and my friends like we you know I I think maybe, maybe I think it might have just been the time too, you know, like there was all this new shit coming out, punk rock, there was thrash metal, there was hip hop and it was all aggressive and it was all different and it was all not what the older dudes at my high school were listening to. And so I really latched on to hip hop too. Like I loved fucking LL Cool J and then NWA came out with that EP and it was like, fuck, this shit is so sick like it's ridiculous the dope man ep and all that and everybody you know and then it was like we're going into the ghetto and we're hanging out at our friend carlton's house who lives in like the fucking gnarliest area of richmond but carlton's a metalhead but we all listen to nwa and public enemy and play thrash metal and listen to trouble and like it was just this weird vibe and all of that kind of urban you know, mishmash of things. And I was like, like shit's changing, you know, like shit's really changing. And, you know, I didn't feel like I just wanted to do something different. And, uh, and so I told the violence guys, I'm starting a side project called machine head. And at that time, that's all it was, was just a side project with riffs that I was doing. And then, uh, what year was that? This is 91. I, I actually went to the day on the green with Metallica and I think Faith No More and Soundgarden were on the bill, and it was Black Album. And I was—I remember why it was October '91, and I was watching Metallica, and I was like, you know, you could just see that everything was about to, like, you'd feel it in the air. Like Metallica was about to blow up, like thrash metal. Everybody was either copying Metallica and slowing down, or going like funk thrash. Remember, like the funk thing funk came metal, about, baby. Like, Extreme. Chili Peppers and Faith No More and fucking, you know, just all that, you know, Fishbone and Primus, and so, yeah, Primus, and everybody was kind of going like diverging into these different ways. And I was like, it's time to like do something different, and uh, and so I did, and and then eventually in February of '92, um, I just 
I quit violence and, and started Machine Head. So the thing about Machine Head is, you know, for me, I'm not sure I've told you this, but I guess I'll, I'll tell it for the, for the listeners. The way I got into Machine Head was I was just getting into metal. And at the time I was listening to Metallica, Megadeth, things that were heavy, but it was still kind of in this, it was still bands that they play on the MTV during the daytime and yeah. things like that. And we used to go to this comic book store and this guy that worked at the comic book store was like, listen, you guys are getting into metal. You got to get this album by Machine Head called Burn My Eyes. Nice. And we were like, all right, all right. And we went to the store and we bought it. We, and that was that back when like records were like sixteen ninety nine and shit. And we were like, all right, this dude gave us the recommendation. We get pick it up. And the, the record cover was awesome. But we took it home and we were like, yo, this is like above our pay grade <laughs> as far as heaviness, right? <laughs> So we were like, well, let's do it. Like, wow, that's, a, that's some pretty serious shit. But we so we kind of like put it on the shelf, you know, okay. for the time being. But then over the next like few months, we started watching Headbangers Ball, got into Pantera, got into Sepultura, got into Slayer. Oh and wow! The, so you didn't you didn't pick it up. You was like no, too heavy for you. Yeah, but then we went back to it, gotcha. and then we're like, Fuck. but you didn't get into it at the time. Yes, you but, like went went down the rabbit hole a little further. We and didn't then came dislike back to it. it. We didn't yeah. dislike it. We were just like. How wow, it, it was just like, man, this is, this is a little, a, a little much for us. But then, you know, it's like anything. You kind of scratch that itch and you just go further and further down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And then we went back to it. And that, that was kind of cool, I think, about music back then was you would buy a record and you wouldn't like it the first time or the second time. Yeah. And you paid for it. So you're like, I'm going to listen to this motherfucker. Yeah, totally. I'm going I'm to get yeah, something out of it. you made a commitment. Yeah. And, um, and, and, it, and, it, and it made you kind of uh, have things grow on you in a, in a, in a different kind of way. But part of of the time, yeah, sometimes it was like, this shit sucks. (laughs) Hey, sometimes you get beat, right? You, there's that one song. Sometimes you're like, what the fuck? I spent this money on this shit. Listen, people talk about buying records. Like that was some shit you did proudly. I never bought records proudly. I was in the used bin. I was hitting up motherfuckers at labels trying to get promo copies. Right, right. I was always trying to get free shit. So I don't know why I should be jumping out the window trying to pay for shit now. Like, <laughs> like I got a gold star on my fucking test. I was always trying to avoid that shit. You know? Yeah. Um, well, we were, I mean, a lot of it came from, from me too. My, my friend Jim was a huge tape trader. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff we weren't paying for. C- I mean, I wasn't paying for vinyl back in, you know, 88, like my buddy Jim was a tape trader. We had everything months before it dropped out. We had, I had rain and blood three months before it came out. It had the hi-hat intros on cassette. It had the hi-hat intros to the song. Still, we had bonded by blood six months before it dropped. I I ended up buying it. Were you bootlegging it and like selling it and shit? No, we weren't. No, we weren't bootlegging. Like back then it was like tape trading. So there was this whole underground scene where you, you had a, you know, a typed out list of bootlegs, demos, live shows, you know, rare albums, stuff from Europe. And my friend, there was like this huge network of people who traded music like this. So all you would on send cassettes. them something, they send you yeah, something. And so they would get, you know, somebody from Europe would get an album like the Venom album, right? They'd get Venom black metal and then they'd dub it onto a tape and then they would send it to somebody in, I'd say my buddy Jim in Fremont and my buddy Jim would take an album from the Bay Area that, you know, was hard to find for somebody in the UK or wherever and then he would tape that and trade them 
right? Mm-hmm. So it was a trading. It was all like this honor system. And then there was guys who were honorable about it. And there was guys who fucked you over and they got like a bad rep. But my buddy Jim had like 14 page list of, I mean, we had every Exodus song that came on the second album. I had probably two years before from like live versions. And, and that's how we, we dug down the hole that way. You know, we had demo, we had the legacy demo, which was, you know, way before Testament. And, you know, we just found music that way. And so in that sense, we weren't buying records. We were trading people for doing it. And granted, they would have to buy the record, but we were spreading all of this music in a totally different way. And so that's why it is kind of hard for me to like, when everybody's like shitting on the fucking streaming services and I'm like, like we didn't even like everybody in this scene came out of it in a totally different way. And not only that, you remember Columbia House? You know what I'm saying? 15 records for a penny. Totally, right? Right? I did that shit. I I got so many records. We were all... Just because we were buying records back in the day to a certain degree doesn't mean we were doing it with like a big smile, like, hey, $17.99, I'm so pumped. I mean, yeah. sometimes I'm gonna go support the band. Like, you know, if I could have got a free record, I would have got a free record. Yeah, you know, so we we all dealt with it. Yeah. But um just to kind of That's a good point though. It's a good point to bring up some listeners I have, I have of to the X Men. Listen, Muff I have this big problem with the the sanctity, the fake uh sanctity of of some people. You you tend to have a lot of, um, I guess, righteousness about a particular subject when your living depends on it. Yeah. <laughs> you notice how that works? <laughs> right. Hmm. right. I, you you made millions from, and it's always the people that made the most money that are the most mad, right. right? It's always Dr. Dre and motherfuckers and Aerosmith and Kiss who are like, these goddamn bastards are stealing from me. I'm like, well, you got a hundred million, man. You're gonna be fine, yeah. all right? We're the ones out here suffering, and when no one knows who you are, Right when you're a brand new band, are you trying to sell your record, or are you trying just just to get people to listen to it? Yeah. You're, you're trying to. Just, just, I mean, I was trying to sell. It. I mean, I remember when right when Machine Head started, we did a demo, and I was like, we were just we were hustling, like we were out there. I mean, we were we looked at it like in the same way that like rappers were, and I was yeah. like, these motherfuckers are selling that shit out of their trunk. Like, I'm gonna go sell that shit out of my trunk. Like, we would, you know, we would. I would spend six hours at the Kinkos making J cards and stickers to put on the cassettes, and you know, little inserts, and we'd make a we dub them on a tape to tape thing. We did that. We did. We and hold then we take on. those, and Where? then we take those, and then we'd bring a backpack and we'd go sell them at shows, and like five bucks here, new Machine Head demo. You know, check it out. People bought it, and we never gave them away for free. You know, like I mean, I might debit for my buddy or something, but we were trying to sell it. Well, let's you know? let's 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 give that a little caveat though. You were already a dude who is already touring, already signed. Sure, you had already been. Well, out I was there. unsigned at this point though. You were unsigned, but you had already been through yeah that stuff. And well, actually, two questions: Is this Machine Head demo still around somewhere to listen to? Mm-hmm. Is it out there? Is it like on a B side? You is in is it in like your personal I know, files? No. I don't know if it's out there. What songs were on it? Any? It was uh, it was some of the earlier stuff. So it was Death Church, Ooh. Old, Fuck It All, Realize, 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 uh, Rage to Overcome. I mean, that ain't no d- demo. And that's like a that's like most of the album. <laughs> <laughs> that's half, half the record. That's not, yeah. that's an EP. And then it's it's instrumental. How, There's one more. How song does it sound? A Nation on Fire. Did it Nation sound on good? Fire. Yeah, I mean, you know, we recorded it in my buddy's bedroom, but he had good, you know, like eight ads and shit, so it sounded rocking. Okay, we so did all the vocals on uh, 
with all the distorted vocals we did on his intercom system in his house. So we just mic up the intercom and it was like distorted vocals, sick. That, that is sick. But here's but all right, so I'm just giving a caveat <laughs> between the people selling their demo and those giving it away. Yeah. If you're Rob Flynn, who's already in a side band and have these amazing songs on one of the most classic metal records of all time and your shit is that dope then yes you nobody was it. looking at it like that though you Listen, know what i mean like but I the was shit a, was good I, I was a has-been though you know like nobody was looking at me like oh fucking i mean but that look, shit was i was hot. A, I, I, I wasn't the same dude i was when i was starting out trying to you know then you were trying to just get in the door anywhere you know like we're trying to get <laughs> and even then i couldn't even like i wasn't even that dude like Craig was that dude, Craig from Forbidden. Like I was super introverted at that time. Like there was Craig was like a dude he could literally just call up, fucking Ruthie's in famous thrash club. Ruthie's in, just call him cold and be like, hey man, we want to play. Like fucking get us on a show. And like I could never do that. Like I couldn't. I just couldn't do that back yeah. then. And he was the guy. I definitely credit him with getting all of our early steps to happen. And then eventually, I you know forced myself to become that guy because I had to. Now I'm like the leader of my own band. Well, I'm saying that was the hot fire in the streets in 92, all right? I'm telling you that shit was spread like wildfire, all right? <laughs> right. People were like, yo, man, you got that mixtape, man. That shit is right, five, right. $5. <laughs> <laughs> so so you have this, this period of time and clearly there is a musical shift and I've, I've written a, a lot about this, uh, a few articles about production, and also just I'm you know because I'm completely fascinated with that era which I wrote this one article called um, I guess the rediscovering the post thrash groove metal scene so whether you want to call it post thrash or you want to call it groove metal pre, almost pre new metal or so you know there's this oh, kind, yeah it kind of crosses all these different um, genres and where everything was kind of coalescing. Um, and you've kind of talked about this, you know, about being, you know, I think it was after Dimebag died about how you guys got called a Pantera ripoff band. And then you kind of talked about it later saying, and you kind of own that, but not, in, but in a way of pride, um, was that, was Pantera like a direct influence or was it more like something that was really happening all at the same time? You guys and Fear Factory and this whole new sound, White Zombie, I guess you could throw in there, Biohazard. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, I think early on, it was for sure more like Pantera was just coming out, you know, and we, we knew Pantera as that stupid glam band from Texas that was like a bunch of posers. So they were you know? known as that. Like they, they were, were, it was well known that they were, and then they, and then when they came out with the heavy, we're like, oh, they're getting heavy now? What? <laughs> like, what the fuck? And uh, so we never really took them that serious. You know, mm -hmm. like we knew, I mean, I knew, we had toured there, so we kind of knew the vibe. But, uh, you know, so for us, it was really more like early Sepultura was influenced, Biohazard, Ministry, you know, Rage Against the Machine. Like that's where, and then obviously rage my, was out at that time. Yeah. Rage was out at that time. The first rage record was out like 91 or so. Man, I got to so, Google that. <laughs> yeah. You Google, you Google that shit. <laughs> and so maybe like 92, like right around that time though. But I, I remember like it came out and it was like, holy shit, this is piss. Like this is killer, but definitely biohazard. Definitely. And then some of the thrash stuff. And yeah, then, it still had and then that for thrash. me, a lot of like punk rock and hardcore, like poison idea, Chromags, stuff like that, that was really like super, you know, 
it wasn't about metal and production. And, you know, at the time for me, I, I didn't really like metal anymore. Like I was just like, to me, metal had crawled up its own ass. It had gotten very serious. It had gotten very perfect. And, you know, it was just boring to me. Like it was really boring to me. Everybody was trying to copy whatever Metallica did. And it just didn't excite me at all. And I was getting way more excited by this kind of hardcore stuff and the stuff like biohazard and what even, even the hip hop thing. And in terms of, like you said, the, the urban vibe because when you look at your guys early music videos the way the band the kind of image of the band oh, was yeah. very urban it was a rap video i mean i'm <laughs> sitting there rocking cornrows we're walking through oakland with pit bulls and shit like it was us emulating a rap video yeah for sure you know that's why i never got the whole like everybody was so surprised when the burning red i'm like what like we covered colors <laughs> yeah you know we're walking like i'm wearing cornrows in my hair here like where did you think this came from you know it was a real lot early cypress hill like i was crazy about all that early cypress hill and i was going to rap shows so i started going to rap shows like 89 and so all of that culture really influenced me and I'm living in Oakland. So I'm constantly exposed to hip hop. In the streets, son, in streets. That's right. I mean, you're just exposed to it. Like whether you want to be or not, you're exposed to it. Yeah. And so that and punk rock. And so all of those things kind of meshed together and we just started forming our sound, you know, like people labeled as, you know, we heard the term new metal. Dude, I didn't hear the term new metal to like, I want to say like five or six years later, like we didn't, we were drawing from biohazard. We were drawing from like Cypress Hill, shit like that. And so it just was, and it was just in the, in the, the desire to just forge something new. Like I hated all the music I was listening to at the time. I hated what metal had become and I wanted to make something new and I had this pretty strong vision for it. And, you know, the fact that I was selling drugs and, you know, selling speed and was in this crazy, like all the dudes I was hanging out with were fucking maniacs out of their mind. And we were just fucking pit bull animals. We were, I was, I would literally, I was getting in fights every two or three days, like get in a fist fight with somebody somewhere over fucking nothing. Like it was just insane and selling drugs and just, fuck, we got banned from, we got banned from three clubs and we had only just started playing as a band. And now like, it was just that crazy and out of hand. Was that because stuff you were doing from fighting? Yeah. From you like were fighting. fighting. Was the crowd no, that fighting. was us fighting people at shows. Like we weren't, we were in the audience as audience members fighting people at shows. And then we'd get banned. Now, was this the, the lineup that ended up being on Burma's at this time? Was this, mm-hmm. was the and same, before, and before that, cause we had, guys. we had, well, we had Tony Costanza, who was the original drummer, and we wrote like a good, we wrote like half the record with Tony. Yeah, you know. So then, like, we had tried out Chris, and I had showed Chris the drum beats and stuff and the songs, and then Tony came in and was the drummer for a while, and then Chris came in later. How did How did Roadrunner come about? Um, so we did that demo, that demo that we were sending around, and we sent it to Burvoy Kurgan. Five dollars, man. What's that? Pop in the trunk. Five dollars. Hey dog, come listen yeah, my so we listen gave my tape. Yeah, we gave it to him for free. <laughs> <laughs> he was working at Metal Maniacs at the time. And uh and he loved it. And we sent it to Monty over at Roadrunner 2. We actually sent it to quite a few labels, all of whom passed on us at the time. But really, we really wanted to be on Roadrunner. You know, Can I ask we you were, a question though? Uh given 
the changing climate, what you had come at, come out of being frustrated with the current state of, of metal, did you have that feeling like, hey, we do have something special and we are gonna be, can be part of the next movement? Or, or, or was that not really present? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever looked at my, you know, like, I think that that's something that's easy to say now, but yeah. like, I never, I never thought that at the time, okay. you know, like I, I was just, uh, you know, like in a lot of ways, I mean, I had a big chip on my shoulder when I quit violence, you know, like it was kind of a shitty way to end and it was this kind of a brutal, violent way. Like my buddy got in a fight and it was fucking like, ended up stabbing this dude and fucking it was like it got super crazy for a minute there and so I quit during this like melee and then you know so for me I like I disavowed violence like I refused to ever say featuring Rob Flynn of violence like it never went out in press it never went out in flyers it never went out anywhere like I wanted Machine Head to succeed or fail on its own merits without any of that and well can I can I make a caveat he did not uh, disavow the act of committing violence. He was doing that no, every, every two to three days, guys. Every, time. every two to three days. Yeah. He's talking about the band, Vio Dash Lens. All right, just you can continue. I just wanted to give that for the for the. But video. we, you know, because of that, we just started writing, and I knew I, I knew we were doing something different, you know, and I wanted to do something different, and I felt like the songs we were coming up with were different to what we are now. There's a big neurosis. We were crazy about neurosis. That was like neurosis souls at zero. Like that was shit that like, it's my jam. Nobody fucking was doing what they were doing back then. I mean, it was so new and so fucking suffocatingly heavy. And that shit just blew our fucking minds, dude. So that was a huge, I mean, you know, people want to reference Pantera. People want to reference this, that neurosis souls at zero you know, I can't even tell you how much that record influenced Burn My Eyes. Well, it's funny yeah. that 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 song starts off with the on their album is the harmonic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I, it's funny you're, you're saying that now. And it's it's actually also funny because uh, Souls at Zero came up when Brian Fair was on the show because how much it influenced his old band Overcast. But now that I'm thinking about it, all a lot of the atmosphere on mm -hmm. Burn My Eyes has, you, I can I can hear it now that you're actually Absolutely. talking about it, and that was a huge thing. And Pantera, of course, came out sometime around then. And then we heard that guitar tone, and we were like, "Holy shit! Like this shit just took guitar metal guitar tone to the next fucking level. Like no one had heard guitar tone like that. Like it was just fucking savage. And obviously, Dimebag was fucking brutal and insanely precise, and that all added to the whole, you know, in great sound of it so to me when i was like it was definitely like a sonic thing for me you yeah. know like it wasn't necessarily a musical thing it was definitely like the sonics of that i wanted that you know i always wanted brutal guitar tone you know but that what became like that's that's like that's the bar now we got a beat yeah and so you know when that tag kind of got thrown on i was like well not really you know what i mean like well this what's well, funny the the tone you bring up so i wrote an article called Pantera ruined modern metal production. You read this article. You know what though? Like to me, no, that, no, it's, that tone was an extension of "Injustice for All" because that yeah. fucking "Injustice for All" tone, like those super clicky kick drums. I talk like about all that in super article. sub chunky yeah. guitar tone. Yeah, I talk. Like that I, was the you know Exodus. You listen to fucking Exodus's, um, 
you know, like you listen to Toxic Walsh or the record off of it. Pantera was getting a lot from that Gary Holt Exodus tone for sure. Even like the grooves, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't think that that ever was really, you know, acknowledged at any point. But Fabulous Disaster played a huge role in getting what where, you know, those two records, I think, helped shaped that sound as much. No doubt. All I'm saying is that was the record that kind so the way I, I looked at it and I went and did research um, and I you looked research at guitar tone. I just researched all of the records that were coming out that time when I guess I was looking more at the the drum sound okay. which and I referenced and just for all in the in, in, in the article but to me it works like a tree and when I say they ruined modern metal productions not because of what they did or what you guys did I'm talking about what kind of became of it 10 years later. The yeah, well, you know what else was a big part of shaping that too, that I don't think ever gets any credit is a prong beg to differ. Yeah. Like that very electronic, you know, that was the first time like metal dudes had really heard like this really electronic drum sound with that super, like super gated snare, mm. super gated kick. But it also had that, you know, it was Terry date. So it had that super chunky, metal tone and that also helped shape a lot of it and doesn't get the credit that it deserves because all of those things kind of led up to that and then you know everybody was like and that's the beauty of music right like there's this little kind of competition like oh that's the new bar like oh we got to get fucking heavier than that we got to get a little bit better than that and then pantera came along and dime came along with that super sick you know, the non-tube solid state guitar tone. And it was like, oh my God, listen to that low end. You can't get that with a tube. Like that's a solid state. Yeah. That shit. But um, if you listen to what, it's actually funny if you listen to that, not like a remastered version, like the actual original version, it has like no low end compared to modern records, which is actually really funny. But if you, AB Vulgar, and then you listen to Burn My Eyes and then Demanufacture, Right after, you you see the influence in terms of the production that um, that I think even though you mentioned those other records, which probably did influence all of that, some things just it's not the the influence of the influence. It's kind of that one main event that kind of ends up sprinkling sprinkling down everything else. Sure. But then I think what you guys did and Fear Factory did, then that created its own source of influence, and that kind of inspired uh, just the way kind of it defined what the the modern metal sound was yes. for the next 15 years right um but anyway i don't want, i don't i don't want to relitigate this article here even though pantera sound guy did write me and say that i i hit the nail on the head so i'm gonna come here this is this is me patting myself <laughs> on the back you know even though i did not mention did i mention prong i don't know i feel like you know what Mesh? i should have hit up rob flynn before i wrote the article he could have gave me the fucking liners notes he's like listen doc you fucked up bro well, it's funny when you live, you know, before that period and then you see the kind of evolution, you know, like I, I'm, I'm older, I'm older than you. So, you know, I've seen I've seen where those things come from, you know, and that's like where and that's what always was kind of weird to me because we had such a hip hop influence. We had like a very industrial influence. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, Pantera. And I was like, well, no, like that's not really like. Like what? Whatever, you know. Okay, <laughs> like what are you gonna do? Like at, at that point, you're just like fucking whatever. It's like bands get lumped in, and you kind of get lumped into this thing when a bunch of other things come up. It's like Kill Switch and Shadows Fall, and all those bands. Even God forbid, you kind of all got lumped in together as this certain sound, but you didn't really sound all that similar. You know, Kill Switch 
to me didn't sound very much as much like Shadows Fall. Like Killswitch had this whole other thing. But we were all contemporaries. Yes. And we were all borrowing from a similar set of, For sure. of influences. And I think... Yeah, you guys started borrowing, you know, like if we were borrowing from those things, you guys came along and you brought in like the at the gates thing, yeah, which well, was totally lost on me. Like yeah. I missed the whole at the gates thing. Well, for us, it was more than just at the gates. It was really everything that was happening in Scandinavia. So it was Meshuggah. It was Children of Bodom. It was Soil Work. It was right. Dark Hane. It was that whole, yeah. there, there just seemed Dark to be a level of, of talent and then mixed with what was going on in the Northeast hardcore scene. So yeah. it was Candiria and yep. Cave-In and Converge and yep. Dillinger Skate Plan. Well, not just the breakdowns, but the um, there was a kind of fearlessness in the songwriting that was actually, I guess you could call it progressive, but it, what, what it was was kind of non-structural songwriting um, and having really crazy dynamics and being kind of unafraid to do weird things in music. That's one of the thing that I think Dillinger did and Candiria was like, oh, they're going to a jazz break. Yeah. Where like, and you're like, oh, there's not really rules, you know, and then kind of combining that and then having that American metal influence of Pantera and Machine Head and Metallica and kind of that, all those three elements to me is kind of what Mm-hmm. the new wave ended up being. But anyway, this is not about me, Rob. This is about you and your journey, all right? <laughs> How the hell did you get a record deal, man? You never finished telling me oh, that. I didn't. I, we went on for like some thing about production. Um, That's how it goes, man. So then, so we sent, the, we sent it to Monty, Connor, who didn't really like it. He didn't really like the demo. But Burvoy Kurgan, who now runs Blabbermouth, mm-hmm. but was at Metal Maniacs at the time, really did like the demo and told Monty he was a fucking idiot for not liking the demo and like basically badgered Monty. And uh, so Monty came out and met with us and he just loved the vibe. He sat there and he watched the practice and we went out to dinner at Spangers in Berkeley and he was just, you know, we, he just really liked the vibe and he made us, you know, like left and came back and made us an offer. And we were like, fuck Cause that's where we wanted to be. You know, that's where Sepultura was. That's where biohazard was obituary, like bands that were kicking ass and metal at that time. And it seemed like a cool vibe. And so we basically got signed based off of that meeting and that demo. And he hadn't even seen us live. He just liked the vibe so much. And, you know, he saw something in, me i guess that you know that's what he says now is that he saw something in me that maybe i didn't see in myself and and uh and then so we got signed and then on the on the on the night that i signed the contract uh we went out to a show at the omni celebrate got hammered we're raging you know this is october of 93 and uh, my buddy came up to me he's like hey man like let's celebrate and do some heroin and i was wasted and i was like fuck yeah great idea like fuck, let's go do it and i ended up uh i ended up ODing that night and Your, i almost day died. one and I, I, this is day one you of almost pulled a len bias I, like the day the you what? get drafted the you, what? len bias he was he got drafted by the boston celtics and the day of the draft he did cocaine for the first time and died oh my god yeah yeah so well, that was almost like that you. it wasn't my first time doing heroin oh it was, uh, sorry 
No, I'd been doing. That's why we were celebrating because it was oh. something we were already doing. Yeah, it was pretty. It was fucking. It was you know people kind of forget about the gnarly beginnings of Machine Head. It was fucking. It was pretty ugly, man. So how and, how old uh, were you when you did get a re- record deal with Machine I was twenty five. Twenty five. Yeah. So I, I always count you guys as like an older band that got signed, but I guess you weren't that old. You were like right in that yeah, mid like, range. I mean, we weren't. You know, I was b- before that. It was obviously younger but that was like yeah 25 and then od'd and i lived and uh it was a pretty fucking shocking you know it's pretty shocking what happened and i was like what the fuck did i just do and then uh and then a week later my buddy jimmy lappin died from the same batch of bad 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 batch of bad heroin came in and uh, it ended up OD and a bunch of people and my buddy died and I lived all within like a three or four day period of, of this OD. And, uh, it was brutal. Like it was a brutal awakening for me. I remember sitting at the funeral going, Holy fuck. Like that should have been me. Like that very well could have been me. And, you know, in a lot of ways it was a huge, uh, motivation to, okay, I got to, this has got to work. Like there's no plan B here. There's no, I'm not doing anything else. This is all I'm capable of doing. Like this has to fucking work. And I'm looking at my friend who just died and I almost died from this same night. Like it was a huge motivation to make machine head be successful. And it was a crazy time. And, and then we ended up recording the record a month later, right after this. How did the situation with Colin Richardson come about? I had heard, uh, I think Monty had sent me a bunch of records. Monty really wanted us to go with this other guy, but he sent the Fear Factory record. I think I might have even had the Fear Factory record. And I was like, this shit sounds sick. Like the fucking Soul of a New Machine. I was like, production's awesome. So uh, so it was just like, let's go with that guy because he's like cheaper than Terry Date. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I then mean, we wanted that like super, you know, he had done, I was crazy about I would, what I didn't realize is that he had done, you know, like I said, I was really into punk rock. And so all those early discharge records were all done by Colin. And so once okay. I started listening to fear factory, I went down the hole and I was like, Oh shit, Colin Richards had did all those fucking discharge records would have brutal guitar tone. I was like, this is awesome. So we did it and went in the studio and yeah, it was all pretty quick. You know, we, we were one of the first bands to really use triggers. And, you know, back then, triggering a drum took, like, three days to do, like, everything. And it was all on some random-ass fucking computer. And well, it's, uh, it's it, you know, when I first heard the record, obviously, I didn't know music well enough to understand the context of what was a good-sounding record or bad or, or any of that. But obviously, with time, I've been able to kind of look back at it. And I remember when, God forbid, before we were even God forbid, we were just a local band or whatever and a, a basement band and listening to that and just it sonically sounding like unachievable. <laughs> it just seemed, you know, we were doing like these terrible, I mean, the worst sounding demos you ever heard. We were, we were awful. And it just seemed so like, like there was a distance, you know, between where we were at just being this kind of garage band. And then, at the time watching Headbangers Ball and seeing you guys on there and hearing these records and it it didn't really seem like bands like you guys, like Sepultura, like Slayer, like Panther, like they were even people. It was just like, right. no, they're that's that's why I always tell people and, and people are like, Oh man, you you were a rock star, you did this and the what did you like I never thought that was even a job. That was like literally 
thinking like, oh, you could be, a, a, you know, in a heavy metal band as a job. That's like saying, hey, you could be a Power Ranger. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's what it, that's how far away right. it, 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 felt, yeah. it felt to me. Because, because no, I think there's this idea of you have your first record and the songwriting is top notch. The production is top notch. You have great music videos. You have great. And even though I've gone back and watched some of the YouTube clips and, and the live show wasn't refined no. yet. But you guys. Kind of like, like just a bunch of dudes jumping. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. You guys at least looked cool as shit yeah. like you guys looked badass like yeah. you looked like you had a great look as a band which obviously probably helped with the marketability and, sure. and selling the band and promoting the band um but that record so what i kind of perceive as this really game changer what how did that actually hit the ground in in terms of uh vibe and um i mean buzz i think record sales i mean it was like you know we were really trying to you know especially being from the bay area you know and i think i feel like yeah you know, i even feel this to some degree now but you know you're always kind of in the shadow of metallica yeah. right like the, it's like it's shadow. like being the other band from liverpool you know what i mean <laughs> like it's like there's so that shadow is over i mean every, even now Every Bay Area article goes, well, they never got as big as Metallica. I'm like, who fucking has? You know, like, it's so fucking irritating. But, you know, we really wanted to, you know, we were we were doing things different. Like, we were the first band to do the drop tuning. Like, we were drop tuned to B. Nobody was doing that back then. We were doing the harmonics. And, you know, the harmonics were just out of feedback. I used to play along DRI and Celtic Frost, and they would get feedback and I couldn't get feedback on my little seven inch amp. So I would go and I'd hit, I found that. I was like, oh, harmonic, cool. Like that's, the, I thought that was the sound of feedback before <laughs> I could get feedback out of my amp. And that's just how I learned to do that. And then, you know, we're, we were doing these things and trying to, trying to be different. You know, we were trying to set our, you know, get out of that shadow to make our own thing. And, you know, I think, I think that, you know, I mean, it's hard to look at my, you know, people want to put like a period at the end of my life and go, okay, this is the one section and this is another section. And, and I never, I just lived my life and I'm living my life and I, I never really like looked too hard back at it. But I mean, there was definitely a hunger. There was definitely a drive. Like I wanted to fucking kill it. I want every time, you know, to me, we played a show with a band. Like I wasn't going up there to be like the second best band. Like I wanted to fucking crush whoever we were playing with. I wanted to fucking blow them off the stage and I wanted to play the fucking best. I wanted to sing the best. I wanted to have whatever, you know, like the best stage presence, the best raps that made people whatever pissed or funny or, and, and so when we, when we hit, when the record came out, it did 1100 copies in the U S which, you know, is respectable. Uh, nothing amazing i mean it was like you know if you think about suicide silence's debut album that was like 9500 copies that's a fucking pretty good debut for that's a brand also, new band they were myspace famous yeah totally that. but we did there but the overseas like it hit the uk like a fucking i had gone over there and done a press tour and i got, ended up getting on mtv and the chick just really liked me and ended up we did like a whole like thing and then they played that mtv thing and it just kind of took off the Davidian radio, no, Headbangers Ball was gone in America by this point, but Headbangers Ball over there was still going. 
So the Davidian video hit, and it just like hit like a ton of bricks. So and this is before you even played over there. This is before we've even played. You know, the press tour was before the record was even out, and uh, the fucking video just exploded over there. Exploded all over Europe, and I mean, we charted at number twenty four in the UK, number twenty something over in Germany. So it was like, holy shit! As a brand new band. As a brand new band, and in America. It was like 1,100 copies, <laughs> like totally different world, no MTV, no anything. And the press didn't really like us over here. You know, like the press really just, you know, we got like a two-page article in the back of, you know, Rip. We got a two-page article in, in like Metal Maniacs way after the fact. And it was, uh, it was a longer slog. We were opening for Napalm Death and Obituary over here. And that was our first tour. We're sharing a bus. And it was, you know, it was great. I mean, it was great for me. It was great because it was, you know, I was like, I can't tour in a van again. You know, I've been doing this for a while. You know, Logan and Adam, like they played their first shows ever with Machine Head. You know, like their first tour, they're in a tour bus. They got a roadie like, you know, they're like, fuck, this is, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're life's good. Right. (laughs) Like (laughs) life's good. Like they didn't know any different. And in a way, kind of like. You know, it ended up being a bad thing because they just got so kind of spoiled by it. Like they had never had to do that van tour. They never had to do the roadie where you fucking pick up your amp and you pick up your guitar after playing for a half an hour and go load it and then drive for nine hours. They always had a driver. Is is that because the band kind of hit the ground running or is that because you were that was because support. i was just because because i was adamant about just have like i got a tour in a bus like well, i who's, can't who's, that, that came out of the band budget that was that tour that support. came out of i mean tour support like they were pushing it you know they were pushing it hard and we were you know negotiating good <laughs> hold on let me i, I, mean, need, I need to i need to reminisce i don't want to sit there and support. make it out like it was all like hey why don't you guys get in a bus no we were fighting to be in a bus yeah and they were like that's quite extravagant i'm like fuck you like i've been doing this you know i got fucking three records out here You're like yo i'm 25 years that's old. that's right i'm right? 25 i'm years a old. woolly veteran done, <laughs> you know how many fucking van tours i've done motherfucker you know. hey there's, there's a lot of motherfuckers who who start in the van Stay in the and van, stay in a van and die in the van. You know, totally. they, they go, they go the whole way. Well, you know, I was, I had to push a little harder and you know, that was kind of a, a thing that I learned too. Like if you, if you, you're always going to get no, you know what I mean? Like you go to the record company for this and they go, Oh, but if you just kind of push, you know, you take that finger and you just kind of stick it right on them and then just, you know, it's not like a super hard push. But it's just a steady, constant push. You'd be surprised what you can accomplish. All right. And, you know, pretty soon they kind of bend to how you do it. And that was a big thing that we learned. And it was an important thing to learn because we really needed to have the things that we have. And then lucky for us, you know, we did have success overseas, which, of course, paid back our advance really fast. And then even if we didn't have as much success over, you know, we ended up getting the Slayer tour. We ended up getting the, the U.S. Slayer tour. And and then we went out and did a headline tour. And we thought we were killing it. But, man, that headline tour was like a fucking brutal. You know, overseas, we were playing like three, 4,000 people every night. We came back to America. We were do, first night, Sacramento, like an hour away from our hometown. 95 people. Was that the we one were like, Stuck holy Mo- shit. Is that the one with Stuck Mojo? Stuck Mojo, yeah. So and get- it was like a brutal, humbling eye-opening reminder wow there's a big difference here like we got a long ways to go do you, you know who i just had on the podcast who john finberg 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Holy smokes. No, he was telling me about that you guys were one of the first bigger bands that, mm-hmm. he, that he had. He, he, said, he booked he, that tour. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, that's he what he said. That first tour. And he said it was... Nicknamed The Disaster. The Disaster. <laughs> he said it was modest, but... Modest. <laughs> but for some reason, I remember... It had a, it had a couple of shining moments. Yeah. Chicago was really good. You know, it was... You know, it was kind of stupid. Mean, we did nine shows in the Carolinas. What? You know, it was like we did seven shows in Florida. I it was like, what the fuck are fake we news. doing? This yeah, is like fake news. 45 people we did. I remember we had 35 people in Houston, Texas. And it was like, we just were like, fuck everybody. We just got hammered. Our drummer played naked. <laughs> it was just like, let's just wreck shit. That is fairly de- demoralizing considering that there was this success. But I, w- I would say at least you had that to lean on. And I think that kind of story was actually pretty repetitive when it came to Roadrunner bands because they had such a stronghold yeah, over there. I remember sure. Killswitch, it was almost the same thing, even though it didn't take them that much longer to actually uh, get a really great following in the US. But mm-hmm. they they immediately, their first European tour was a Road Rage tour with right. 5.0 and 36 Crazy Fists and Every Night was sold out. Their first. Wow. You know. That's uh, awesome. And that, you know, kind of speaks, even a band like Glassjaw, Mm-hmm. When they first came I out, did, did very well in the UK and struggled. Supporting Deftones, like right off the bat. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the apparatus that was Roadrunner. And they had built such a strong brand and, and were able to promote their stuff well. In America, without having constant radio play, without having MTV kind of to push things, the country's so damn big. The yeah. truth is, it's, America's like 15 I think countries. Too for, I think for a lot of people, like back then, too, like, Roadrunner was changing, you know, like Roadrunner in America was especially known for like deicide, obituary, you know, Sepultura, like kind of death metal, like, uh, you know, early death metal. And, uh, and then here comes like Biohazard and fucking Machine Head. And it's like, what the fuck is this shit? You know, like it was different. They had it a lot of hardcore tools. Madball, they did. They signed Earth Madball. Crisis. That was a little bit later, but they yeah. did start signing Madball and Earth Crisis. And that's when it really started. VOD. Changing. VOD, but that was all like 96, 97. Okay, this was so what, 94? Like, yeah, this is 94, 93, so. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. 
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. It was a different vibe, but it was still, you know, it was great, and I look back on that tour and like, I'm glad it happened that way. You know, I'm glad that it that it brought us back down to earth because it was like, holy shit, like we got to fucking work for this and we got to earn this. And, you know, we're, we were playing pool halls and, you know, I mean, like straight up like pool halls. <laughs> like, Well, I mean, a lot of bands put out their first record and if even if they're doing well, they probably won't even headline until they've done three or four support yeah. slots in the yeah. states. And so granted, we, you know, to keep in mind, this is a year and a half after the record's been out. Oh, okay, so this, so this was is, this the is wrap a while. Up. Yeah, okay. this is still a while into it, and uh, and and you know, it just it's like a lesson. Like that's all it yeah. was to me. Like it's this thing, and you just you learn from it, and in some ways, it makes you better and stronger, and you know, for sure, made me a better frontman because you had to command an audience that maybe wasn't necessarily on your side. They were just kind of there out of curiosity because they heard this buzz or whatever, and, like, you had to fucking earn it, man. Well, you're, I have to say, touring with you guys, so some people know this, but for the for the listeners, God forbid got to do about three and a half months with right. Machine Head on through the ashes of the empires. And for me, in many ways, it was like, like heavy metal college, you know? <laughs> no, because there was a certain Machine Head University. It no, it it, <laughs> it 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 was because for us it was like this. We had kind of graduated, I think, out of doing these more underground type tours, and to us, you got you guys were a heavy metal band. It was you know the difference, like oh here this band's a black metal band, this band's a death metal band. It's like it's speaking to this kind of broader idea of what um, heavy metal is in more of. And when I say mainstream, I don't mean that in, a, in an accessible sense, but just more like it's just speaking to the broader sense of that. This like you For guys sure. are more connected to. I mean, I sit there like I don't, you know, I think there was a time like if you would have said this to me maybe five years ago, said like mainstream, I would have been like, uh, and you know what? Like at this point, I just own it. We're a mainstream metal band. I mean, we are. I mean, we've got, we're heavier than a lot of the, other bands for sure and i think that where it comes from is definitely a more authentic place you know because of where we came from musically our, our roots hardcore thrash you know even the hip-hop you know it's just more of a gritty thing but to me that's like that's what we are now and that's what we've been for a while but that's what we really are now what but what is and i don't and i don't you know like and 25 years later 23 years later on from burn my eyes like i'm cool with that like we're not the heaviest band on the block anymore. Like there's bands that are fucking so much heavier than us now. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, no bro. Like we're way heavier than that shit. Like we aren't. And that's fine. Like that's totally fine. And you know, I think that's what's allowed us to kind of grow and do like, you know, a song like darkness within or a song like descend the shades of night or a song like, you know, the songs that we've got on bloodstone and diamonds, you know, shit like that sail into the black. And it's like, you got to own it to just move on 
and be like, okay, that was a part of my past and I love that part of my past and I'm going to always respect that part of my past, but it is my past and I'm not that dude anymore. Like I could never write a record like Burn My Eyes ever again. You know, I was 25 and out of my fucking mind on drugs and speed and dealing drugs and fighting every two. Like I'm a totally different person now. I look at that guy. I'm like, who the fuck was that guy? Like that's that's what I think. And you know, my life is different. And you just reflect that in your life now. And to me, that's being honest as an artist. Yeah, I I was I was just I almost cut you off there, but I, I wanted to say that to me, mainstream in many ways. Ultimately, what it means is you have more fans, right? Like Cannibal Corpse, if they have more, if they have the most fans, doesn't that technically make them mainstream, right? I mean, Slipknot is as heavy as anybody. Right. They're as abrasive, but they have a lot of fans. So does that make them more mainstream than Shinedown, who has maybe less fans, right. but is more accessible sounding? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't. So, so I think some of those terms don't necessarily apply but it's just a reflection of how well a particular band has done is that hey we have we have this many people that care about what we do yes this band is your only job and uh, and uh, only a few people actually have the luxury and the the um privilege to actually say that right. and um and you've done it kind of um or not even kind of but i think distinctively with this sense of kind of artistry and 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 unleashing your personality and your kind of heart and your soul and in, 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 into that, you know, um, I don't know, man. It was, I was thinking about this. I was like, you're actually one of the hardest people that do a, a show like this on because you're so open that a lot of the story's already out there, right? Like you've already, I remember you, you know, uh, a lot of people have checked out your blogs on mm-hmm. the, the, was it the General's Journal? General Journals, yeah. You know, and... I remember you doing the whole detailing of what led up to through the ashes of the empire oh, okay. and what was going on. And then you, I think, wasn't there a documentary too that you guys put out mm-hmm. about, about yep. that, about like yep. after, you, after ashes. Yeah. So you had, you had to put out the, you said you had to do that EP, EPK. Oh yeah. The EPK <laughs> electronic press kit. Yeah. And you know, and you were just, and so you guys are so open in a sense, uh, kind of going down some of these, uh, rabbit holes and, and into some of this, it would be kind of reiterating some stuff that's already out there. So I don't want to get too deep into, in, into some of that stuff. But I think one of the things that's really fascinating to me about the band is you're probably one of the most scrutinized bands in terms of the press and the fans and the internet, because there's so many, there's been so much shifts musically. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, there was this, you know, uh, what was that movie uh, Headba- metal headbangers journey? And they have that um, the heavy metal uh, history tree and like the, of categories. Okay. And so they had you guys under groove metal, mm-hmm. and then they have this web show on Banger Films where they've like recategorized the stuff to kind of update it. And you guys are one of these bands, and they they were like, "Well, we think they're," and this is recently. They're like, "Well, we think they're a new wave American heavy metal band." They're like, "Nah, man, I think they're like." A new metal band. <laughs> so I was like, man, but they're kind of still groove metal. And I've noticed that with some of the kind of most important bands, you guys, Slipknot, that if you last long enough and maintain your relevance, it's partially because you've kind of transcended the genres and the subgenres. 
and you've and you're you one of these guys like yeah it de- depends on what era of the band you can kind of lump them in with this group of bands like I like I would say that around the late 2000s that you guys were a part of the new wave American heavy metal movement you kind of re- reinvented the band and yeah you were peers with Lamb of God you were peers with Trivium you were peers you know Azalea Dying um, and uh, you know you brought all us bands on on tour and we were kind of and we felt uh like we were part of the same thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then it's also, you could say, oh, well, then proves that were, were they part of the new metal thing? Like to a certain degree, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's, the, all the answers can be correct. But then when you kind of get out, out on the other end, because guess what? All of those subgenres and those little trends eventually die off. Yeah. And then you're just left with the band for what it is. Mm-hmm. Right? And and um, I don't know, it's just it's just really kind of, fascinating like like where do you kind of see like how what do you when you think about the band because especially after this the 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 last single you dropped which was obviously a you know kind of paid a little more creative nods to some of the 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 kind of the 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 rappier stuff that was going on and and is and is that have anything to do with what the new record's going to be or You don't, you, don't I did, you know, I just, that last, you know, you're talking about, is there anybody out yeah, there? Yeah. And uh, I just thought it was a fucking awesome chorus. I was like, this shit's fucking so goddamn catchy. That is a good, a good ass chorus. Like, I just, I was like, you know, like in the one sense, it was, it was just a really great song that I felt we needed to put out. I thought it was good to put out because we were just getting off the road and we weren't going to be going for a while. And here's something to kind of hold fans over. I thought it was a cool way to do something digitally because we only released it digitally, no physical release, and see if that type of thing would work for a band like Machine Head. I know it works for hip hop, know it works for pop, but can that work for us? And and it did. It's our number two song on Spotify. It's past even Now We Die, which had a video and an album and a tour, it passed Game Over, which had all this huge, you know, push from Octane. Do you have the iTunes uh, sales numbers? Is that they okay? They don't, like, you know, they don't, like, Apple Music doesn't really share. I just know the streaming. I know that it was our number one most downloaded song. Mm-hmm. So just as far as, like, the, but they don't give the st- Apple Music. doesn't. No, I mean, the like, the actual pur- the purchases from yeah, iTunes. Yeah, the purchases, the number one song, wow. our number one downloaded song from iTunes. Mm-hmm. Number two stream song on Spotify in just over a year. And I was like, wow, like that fucking, that worked. And it's cool that it can work. It's cool that something like that can be done with a band, you know, a bunch of old farts like us and put something out. And like, this is something that we could continue to do. And, and, you know, I don't want to say that that influenced where we went now, because I don't think anything, you know, anything influences anything. Like I just feel you know, like everybody wants to know, like, so was there a plan to, you know, on the new, re- I'm like, there's no fucking plan. Like, there's never been a fucking plan. Like, I don't fuck, like we just write and this, you know, like I, it would, it would probably make me sound so much smarter if I went, Oh dude, I had this total plan and it's all in my, you know, like, but no, that's not the truth. Like we just get in a fucking room. The four of us get in a room together and we just start jamming and we jam on stuff and, you know, with the first three, four songs that we wrote, two or three songs that we wrote for the record, it was just super straight ahead, four minutes, you know, heavy, but fucking simple. And we were like, fuck, sweet. Like, we don't need to go six more minutes here. We don't need to add a bunch of twists and turns. And 
it was just cool and we liked it and that's the shit that got our dick hard and for like the first month we were killing it oh my god we were just every fucking thing we wrote was gold and well, I was like oh my god and then the next month it was like we couldn't write a great song or a great riff to save our lives like I went through this phase where all I wrote was like horrible Fiona Apple power ballads that were just like garbage. I was like, what? Even my dudes are like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, all I want to write is Fiona Apple songs. And uh, we just rolled with it. Like, you just, you know, you kind of go on that journey. Like, I, you know, we all we got together three or four times a week for a year. You know, we all live in the same area. We all practiced together and we all sat there and wrote and just, we went down that journey in some months was a great month for it. And then the next month was just the, and we just went through all the peaks and valleys together and we all helped shape the songs into what they became. We all recorded together and, and when it was all done, we ended up with this record that is a very grooving, very melodic, probably the least thrashiest album we've done in well over a decade. And for no reason, just because that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Right on. I've got nothing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is um, this is an interesting conversation because I've, I, in a way, I have so many things I want to ask you, and then in some other ways, I don't want to be too monotonous, you know, um, because, like I said, you're you're in the podcast realm. You got everyone asking you about about racism. So, how are we going to solve racism? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so, how are we gonna do it? So no, actually, I slowly, slowly, <laughs> clearly, very slowly. slowly. Well, actually, so I, I came up with an idea because before all this stuff with with Phil happened, um, I was like, yo, I, I was wanted to get a CFH tattoo. You know, that's like a metalhead thing to do. I was like, now it's like it's pretty pretty rough. There's a lot of connotation, so I figured out a middle ground. So I get a black power fist right <laughs> on like my arm. Just a black fist, right? And then put the CFH in the middle. <laughs> what, what do you think? No? Uh, it's kind of hard. Whatever man. floats your boat, bro. That's some black metal shit, <laughs> That's man. Some, I don't know. I don't know about that one. No? You know what? I like it. You All know? Right. You know, I'm the one that's going to yeah, have to wear you're it. You're the one who's got to wear it. Yeah, what the well, fuck the do you care about? What do you care about what I think? I have a lot of ideas. Not all of them are actionable. Um, but, you know, I'm an idea man. You know, and, and the execution of an idea is not always, you know, as a kind of doesn't really galvanize the soul as much. The execution the, is everything, though. I know. Everybody's got ideas. It's the execution that matters. But just because you have an idea don't mean you should do that shit. <laughs> no, definitely not. Just because a motherfucker has you a heroin needle don't mean you need to use it. <laughs> That's right. For sure. Um, Somebody should have been there to tell me that. Yeah. But, <laughs> I, but wouldn't actually, I wouldn't have listened. Yeah. Um. But but kind of a, a, about the, uh, the 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 not even the topic of of, of racism because I don't even want to uh, knock that down too much. But I've kind of you know we're we're in the midst now of this big purge of uh, sexual assaulters and mm-hmm. and uh, harassers, and there's this societal thing I think going on where especially I think this is more common on the the liberal side of of or the mainstream. Uh, where we kind of want to throw people in what I call de- decency jail. And what, oh, decency jail? Decency mm-hmm. jail, right? Like, we literally want them to go in a cave, 
and never work, never show up, don't come to the parties, all right? We will not be inviting you to the parties, but if you get catch wind of the party, we do not want to see you at the parties. Yeah. We want you to, yeah. we loved you when we liked you, and now we've, you've done something that has breached the code, we want you to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the Phil situation, he kind of did that for a minute, right? He he went away for a little bit, but then you know came back, did some shows, and I'm sure it's been hit or, hit or miss for, for what's going on with him. But my kind of credo and the way I look at the world, and I think it goes beyond just racial infractions or sexual infractions or just general the way people fuck up and whether that's crime, right? Like someone commits a crime, they go to prison. And I think in many ways the the decency angle of our – the way we look at justice is that if you fuck up, you should pay forever. I think that's how a lot of people feel about Mm -hmm. certain things that – that essentially all crimes now are becoming uh, a life sentence, or some people that's that's what they believe. And um, you know, how do you how do you feel about that? Because I I have kind of a problem problem with that. I don't know if it helps solve the problem. I uh, I spoke about this in my uh, general journal that I put out about Charlottesville, and I brought up a. I wouldn't call him a friend, but he was a a journalist that I knew and I met him in, he was from Amsterdam and I met him on the burn my eyes tour, the first tour that we did over there. And his name was Anno Cromag named after the Cromags, huge Cromag fan, big dude in the hardcore scene. And, uh, he was an ex Nazi, like an ex Nazi skinhead. And, he came to interview me for the first time and he sat there and like, you know, dude's super intense, big. I mean, built like a fucking brick shit house, you know, like he was solid as a rock. And, uh, and he like, you know, we were talking we were talking about hardcore. We were talking about the interview and he's wearing a jacket at the time. And, you know, the interview was going on and at the end of it, he was just super open. And he was just like, you know, I used to be a fucking, total Nazi skinhead. I was a total piece of shit. And uh, he showed me this fucking tattoos and he had swastika tattoos. And he's like, I fucking had a super intense time uh, at one point and shit got really serious and fucked up and it just scared the fuck out of me. And, and I, and I got out of it and I, and I was like, wow. I mean, he like, this is, I'm a stranger. Like he just met me. We just did an interview for 30 minutes. This is the only time we've ever talked in our lives. And it just, it fucking blew me away. I was like, whoa, dude. And, uh, and, and, and impressed me because he obviously felt like this incredible regret about it and this incredible guilt about it. And his way of getting past that was to just, like I have to own this. Like I can't hide this, and and he felt compelled to tell me, and and I always admired that about him, you know. And he really worked hard to to help people who were in that scene to try and get out. And not, you know, a lot of people didn't accept him for that. You know, a lot of people still looked at the old Ano the way he was. And went, you know, this motherfucker's a racist piece of shit. He's a fucking Nazi. Fuck this dude. And, and you know, that's the, that's something he just accepted about himself. And I think work towards uh, maybe getting people to have tolerance for outside of that. 
and uh, there's another guy who does that in Chicago. There's called it's called Life After Hate, mm-hmm. and I and I tagged that in the journal. You know, and he's you know same thing. And there's a lot of these. There's a lot of these guys that do that. That they they have this, um, you know, because they were in it, and they have that experience. They try and help, and you know, nine times out of ten, it doesn't work. You know, they only get one out of ten out of these you know, crazy situations, but, uh, you know, I think you got to look at things like that and be like, you know, that's a fucking hell of a, that's a hell of a thing to do. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, they're in the, they're in the decency jail forever, you know, to some people that guy was in Ano was in the decency jail and they were never going to let him out of it. And then, but you know, the, the guy did a lot of great work to help people get out of that. Mm-hmm. You know what he saw, he did wrong. And, you know, I think that there's, you know, this very complicated issue. Obviously, it's a very charged issue right now, especially in America at 2017, November 2017. Um, but I look to guys like Ano and go, hey, you know, like that's a fucking he was a solid fucking dude, man. He was awesome. You know, I've got I've got buddies like that, you know, now that like got out of it. And it's like fucking it's crazy. You know, it's a crazy life and you don't know where somebody goes you don't know why somebody does that and granted i don't know much about his life you know again we were fast friends you could call it but you know that's how that was that's kind of how i look at it so you you think there has to be that that room for atonement and for people to change you know and and us to allow i think that the the i don't think everybody's going to change yeah I don't think everybody's capable of change. Yeah. And I don't think that, you know, I've done therapy for 20 years. You know, I, I reached a point in my life where I was literally fighting people and dealing drugs and two, three times a day. I was completely like crazy sex addict, hanging out with strippers who were other (laughs) like fellow sex addicts. And, and, you know, like I ended up, you know, when machine head got popular, you know, a lot, and we had this kind of tough guy image. People wanted to test us all the time, yeah. you know, and people wanted to test us because they wanted to like, yeah, let's go fucking take that guy out and then turn around and sue him. And I had a couple people who did that and went through that. And, uh, and you know, it was like a rough adjustment for me, like to go from like being able to do that to not being able to do that. You know, it used to be like me against the world, like fighting fucking everybody. And like, I would fight anybody anywhere. I didn't give a fuck, dude. I fought fucking Nazi skinheads. I broke a 40 ounce over some motherfucker's head. who was six foot six, you know, like I just didn't give a fuck. And then to have that taken away. And now I couldn't do that because dude, there could be consequences and you're in a fucking famous band now, or people are going to come at you. And you know, I kind of turned it around on myself and I had, that was that was pretty self-destructive at this point, and there was times in my life when I was pretty self-destructive. You know, I was a cutter. I was, you know, I had all this fucking rage inside of me, and I really turned it on myself. Did a lot of drugs, a lot of self-destructive shit. Started cutting again, and uh, I just reached a point after Logan quit that you know I'm adopted. I had all these fucking abandonment issues, and I just reached a point where I literally was self-destructing at the end of the more things change. <clears throat> and I was like, I got to fucking change. Like I'm fucking, I became bulimic. I had all these like body images, like, you know, 
completely like low self-esteem and like low fucking just my butt and I always thought I was fat and and I was I've always been fat even now I'm fat but you know I just get used to it and I got okay with it but I was fucking full-on bulimic yeah and I would make the excuse of well you know I just ate too much food so I got to throw up oh I drank too much booze I got to throw up you know and it was this constant daily thing and you know at some point it just took its toll and I reached a point where I was like, I got to get some fucking help. Like, I can't, I'm not figuring this out. <laughs> like, this is not, wor- whatever I think I'm doing to make this work isn't working at all. And I ended up going to some, like, therapy really intensely, you know, probably two, three times a week for a good four or five years. And then, and even now, I still go. And I haven't gone in a while, but I go and, you know, just helping me wrap my you know I'm I'm a fuck up you know like I'm a fuck up and I've had a fucking crazy super dysfunctional you life you still feel like that now you feel like you're a fuck up I feel like I, yeah I feel like, like currently or fucking, you... yeah like I feel like I've still got so much fucking just shit in my head and you know I was thinking like when I was getting done with this press tour like I need to go to the goddamn therapist I was like fuck I need to like work some shit out I went to my therapist and, today and, and you know what like it helped a lot you know it and it didn't make those things go away. It didn't make all the like fucking anxiousness or whatever my fucking this dysfunctional life that I had as a child. Like, it didn't make it go away. It just gave me coping skills to deal with it. Yeah. You know, and I don't look at myself like I'm better because of it. But the only reason that I was able to change was because I wanted to change. And that's not the case for most people. But I reached a literally a point where it was like my lowest low throwing up every fucking day because I hated the way that I looked cutting myself, fucking drinking drugs, ketamine, fucking Coke and like just going crazy. And it was a long process, you know, like the burning red was, you know, I I shaved my head and then I fucking dyed my hair and I started wearing, you know, bright clothes. Like I wanted to change myself image that I saw in myself And, you know, people looked at it like I was just whatever, like whatever they fucking thought about that time with my crazy spiky brown, black and blonde hair. And, you know, for me, it was just trying to get away from this dude, this self-destructive dude that I didn't want to see anymore, that I didn't want to look at anymore, that I didn't want to be anymore. And then even during that era... You know, I'd make all this progress with therapy, do like six, eight months where it was like super positive. And then I'd freak out and I'd just completely revert back to what I used to do. And I'd just try and bury it with drugs and try and bury it with booze. And it was a really like long, you know, they call it peeling the onion, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're peeling the onion, you're removing all these layers slowly to get back to who you are as a person. And it took a long time. It took a fucking long time to be able to get back to that person. You know, I'd say probably all the way through to through the ashes. You know, and even maybe probably even past that, which is a good you know, 6 years, 7 years before I could seriously like just look at myself and be like, "No, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not going to be that self-destructive person. I'm not going to be this fucking like completely rage anger filled dude who wants to fight people every two or three days and you know it was a long process and I'm glad I went through the process it was a tough process most people don't want to 
put that much effort into something, but you know, I had reached that low and I wanted to change and I did. Well, and I don't, and I don't regret that change. I love that change. I'm glad that I changed. I'm glad that I was able to go through all that, you know, and that's the same thing with Anno Cromag. He had reached that point where of absolute, just fucking rock bottom. And he changed. Yeah. Well, when, when we met, I didn't see that person. I didn't see some self-destructive person. You seemed like someone who had uh, been humbled um, and not given I'd never met you before, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. But these, these are things you kind of, when we first met, you would kind of talk about openly. Like you yeah. were very like, you were like an open book, which is yeah. kind of crazy. I'm like, I just met one of my heroes. And he's like telling, you know, you were like, yeah, I used to be a fucking asshole and I used to be a drug, you know, I used to be on drugs and, and you know, you guys were so open to us in general. Like I remember the first show, cause we were, we did the New England Metal Fest, but the first actual show was in Albany and there was like a case of beer in the room. It was like, welcome to the tour from Machine Head. Oh, right on. And to this day, no, no band has ever done that. And on the last show of the tour, they got us a bottle of Cristal. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, You're big pimping. Yeah, hey man, we we were it was it was it was really exciting. But you know, just on the on the personal level, it seems like everything that not only you maybe you were going with through personally because I guess that was the first tour you guys had done in a while, right? In it wasn't America. that long. We had we had just toured in uh, 2002. Yeah, but this was 2004. That's that's two that's two years. This is a new record. Well, we had toured. In, we were touring in 2003 behind through the ashes. You did a, a U.S. tour? We did a European tour because the record came out first. And, I know. But this was the first U.S. tour. Oh, I'm gotcha. Talking, I'm sorry. Yeah. In, in, in America. This was a, yeah, t- we had done. We did America in 2002, so it had been a couple years. Yeah. But I remember tell, you like talking and you were like, man, like we can't even get a feature in Revolver. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> we couldn't get anything. <laughs> and you we were, couldn't get anything. Motherfuckers were like straight up blacklisted us. It yeah. was brutal. Yeah. Like, and I, everywhere. And I, and I think with the exception of that Albany show, which was like a couple hundred people, it was a pretty good tour. Like, yeah. Like people actually came out. It was rocker. People were like. Like in the the uh, fucking LA show was brutal. What do you mean like brutal? Dudes breaking their fucking legs and fucking. We had to stop the show because like motherfuckers broke their legs. Are you serious? Yeah, it was. I remember it was being insane. sick. Yeah, I remember being great. I mean, Chicago, yeah. Chicago was great. Yeah, uh, Fillmore totally. was great. Um, but and it probably would have been even better if if Arch Enemy wouldn't have dropped off. Um, but but no, but it it seemed and then right after that we did the European tours, obviously much bigger, mm-hmm. and you guys were more in your element. I mm-hmm. think as far as I was concerned, but, but I saw an air of humility and also, like I said before, kind of reiterating, just, I just studied your professionalism and your kind of like, I don't care what motherfuckers say. There's not that many people like the Rob Flynn, I have the tiger, like I'm going to crush every, everything. Like I always tell this, I don't even know if I've told this story on the podcast, but we were in Austria it was like some sold out show, 2,000 people. And you guys, and I, was, I remember I was watching the show from the balcony and you guys were just killing it, just murdering it. People jumping, the lights, it was sick. And then after the show, you flipped out, like destroyed the catering room, destroyed. Oh, you were mad about monitors or so, okay. something happened. All right. Um, but you, you fucking destroyed it. And then fucking Mark Workman, the tour manager was fucking pissed off cause you were pissed off or <laughs> anyway, this shit was crazy. All right. These dudes were, were so mad. But the thing I take away from that is not that you were mad. It was that you never let it affect the show. Like you would never, it was like, you wouldn't, it's, it's like if someone was like, a acting in a play on, on Broadway and they're like, 
their nose was itching and they were just like not itching. They're like, I'm in character. My character would not itches, would not scratch his nose. You know, it just seemed like a level of discipline of I'm having a bad show, but I'm not going to let it affect the crowd or the people that paid. They didn't, I'm here for them. You know, it's not about me. It's about they paid. And, and that, that's something I always took, took away from that. Um, and also I remember this is on the, the previous tour. We were playing the song washed out world. Actually, no, maybe it was on the European tour and you were like, man, you guys aren't doing those harmonies. <laughs> in the bridge and he and he like busted out the acoustic he was like come on guys work on these damn harmonies That's fucking funny. and we never and we never i was like i was like Man, that was my jam and i was just like what the fuck is going on over there yeah it was well i had to do the the solo and you're like do this just do it at the same time and you would do that and like me i'm like no nah, i'm not that good and else at the time i was not very I was not a very good singer at the time. I just really started started doing it, so I was not accomplished in that in that realm. But it just uh, it showed me how much a you gave a shit, like you cared enough to want the band to be better, and and it, that was kind of right before everyone started being on tracks, and you know people just do that shit now, and no one will be singing. They'll just be like, man, they sound good, <laughs> you know. Um, and the fact that you you really took an active interest in wanting us to be better and, and become better. So, you know, I'll always remember that and always appreciate know, everything you did, man. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This is great. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. Love you, dude. Hell yeah.
That song was called Beyond the Pale, and it's from the new Machine Head album, Catharsis, which is coming out January 26th on Nuclear Blast Records. And I hope you enjoyed that song. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Rob Flynn. Thanks again to him for taking his time after a long weekend of press that he did, and he he found some time at the end of the day to actually fit me in. So that was really, really awesome. That was a lot of fun. And overall, I have to say things are going really well with the show. People really responded really well to the last episode I did with Eric German, the entertainment lawyer. And I like that episode because it kind of just flowed. We just started talking about different stuff and it wasn't so much about the biography. So it kind of tells me people want, kind of want to hear some more stuff like that. So we'll, we'll see. We'll try and get stuff that's a little more topical, a little more conversational and not just following uh, a person's history. So I'm, I'm feeling good about stuff right now, guys. And, and I, I announced this online, but I shouldn't announce this here. The show is also on Spotify now. So tell your friends and more than likely, I think I'm going to upload the episodes to YouTube as well to just get this show out there to as many platforms as possible. So keep telling your friends about the X-Men because you know, there's a lot of shows out there for metal music, what have you, but this, I think what I'm doing is its own thing, and hopefully you guys are enjoying it. And if you're listening to this long in, you probably do. So, so much thanks to you guys. If you would like, please head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave a review and rate the show. If you would like to sponsor the show, hit me up. What else? Do I have anything else? I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure. You know, I'm just, I'm just, just feeling good right now, guys. <laughs> Getting choked up. Anyway, Mamba out. radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.